I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Battleground Boots on the Ground with Selena Zito. Uh, 2022 is in the books, Selena. And 2024 is fast approaching, and the field looks like it's taking shape already. You have yeah. this piece out in the Washington Examiner. Haley has what it takes to make a go of it, says South Carolina Republicans. So, Selena, does Nikki Haley have what it takes to run for president and beat the front runner, President Trump? Well, I would argue that I'm not sure President Trump is the front runner. Don't be Interesting. shocked. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind um, of am shocked. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think there's a front runner. Uh, I think that there's a mixed bag uh, that has DeSantis in it, uh, that has a Nikki Haley in it, uh, and that has Donald Trump in it. And I think it's going to be an interesting, robust process. And sure, that's how it should be. Uh, you have to earn the voters' trust and 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 earn their confidence, and and you got to let the voters kick the tires a little bit too. Uh, that's what's wonderful about covering a primary in the state of Cal- uh, South Carolina. Um, I, you know, I love Iowa for all of its reasons. The voters are mostly evangelical voters in a, in a Republican um, um, uh, caucus. And, you know, there's more talk about faith and there's more talk about freedom of religion. Right. And, and so th- that's what sort of makes that that primary special and interesting. Then we go to New Hampshire. Right. It's more of a libertarian streak in the party. And so there's a lot more talk about government, the role of government in our lives, the role of big tech um, and and sort of corporations. So it's a different conversation. But you land in South Carolina and it's everything. It has <laughs> Everything in it. It has, you know, in the um, in the in the Piedmont area, you have the um, evangelical voters. Uh, you have a strong military presence, maybe the largest military um, current and retired military presence in the in in any of the the early primary states. Uh, you also have a blue collar component to it, and you also have, you know, and it within that blue collar component is Hispanic. Voters. These are small business people, right? That own companies like HVAC companies and 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 all these little sort of small businesses that are the rock of the community. Hmm. So I think there's a lot there. There's also several. Um, there's also several uh, college towns. Uh, even though college towns tend to be more liberal in South Carolina, they tend to be more conservative. 
There, are, it's a, but it's a different, different kind of conservatism. So I think that to me, out of all the early primary states, South Carolina tends to be sort of the one that has everything, the melting pot. And it also is a large black population. And you saw with the election of both Nikki Haley and Tim Scott that black voters have responded to their type of conservatism. And, and I think that's wonderful. So, so uh, back to Nikki Haley. I remember first covering her as, when she was in the state legislature, later, and um, everyone sort of underestimating her when she was going to run for governor, right? Mm -hmm. Like there were all these heavy hitter establishment, like three, four, five term um, (laughs) entities, right? And she's just like, yeah, I'm running and I'm going to win. And everyone's like, whatever, you know, but she did. And she won big. She was in a field of, I think, five in um in 2010 there were five and it i mean she just missed having to go into a um into a runoff she got like 49.9 percent of the vote right and then come to the, there there's a runoff and she wins like 65 35 against like a four or five term congressman so I just would never underestimate her. She was the first female governor of South Carolina, the first person of color as a governor of South Carolina. She came after Mark Sanford, which, of course, we know he got like lost in the Appalachian Trail or something <laughs> like that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, she wasn't afraid to take on big government reforms. And, and I think when the issue of the Confederate flag came up at the state capitol, she handled it forcefully, but with grace, uh, which a lot of people don't ha- have that, 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 nim- the, that nimbleness to be able to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I, think, I think underestimating her is probably um, a fool's errand. It doesn't mean she's going to win, but that does mean that she's, She's really smart and really savvy. Like you have to, in South Carolina, just like Iowa, just like New Hampshire, you have to have a good grassroots operation. You have to have a good infrastructure. And I, I wouldn't doubt that she uh, has already possesses that in her state. That, that yeah. was my next question, Selena. Yeah. Like if you're going to run for president, it's not like running for Congress. It's not like even running for governor or for Senate. You have to have a national infrastructure, grassroots infrastructure in many of the primary states, of course, the primary states, but also nationwide. And you have to have the fundraising chops to raise significant amount of money. And yes. it do you think do you think that Nikki Haley has that? Yeah. In her in South Carolina. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember and 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 and, and she wasn't the only one that did this. Kim Scott did this. Um, Glenn Youngkin did this. The Virginia governor. Um, um, Ron DeSantis did this. The Florida um um, governor, they went around and they campaigned for a lot of, of down ballot candidates. Some of them won, some of them didn't. But mm-hmm. that presence, I mean, Rod Santos was in Western Pennsylvania. That right. presence, that showing up counts. People mm-hmm. want to say he or she was in my backyard. 
People want to know that they were able to kick, again, I keep saying kick the tires, but I can't express to you enough how important that was. Now, I will say there has been only one exception in my lifetime, and I have been covering this for a very long time. There's only one person that had zero infrastructure, zero fundraising apparatus, but had the media, and that was Donald Trump. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Listen, yeah. you're talking about South Carolina. Let me. So I, I have a funny South Carolina story, and I want to like. Marco so Rubio. I was I I <laughs> I was um campaigning with Marco Rubio. This is before I sort of realized the impact that President Trump would have on the body politics here in this country. I liked Marco Rubio back in 2016, and I helped him because I really do believe, and I agree with Nikki Haley on this, about the next generation of conservative leaders, young conservative leaders yeah. stepping up to fix the problems that we have in this country today. That's why I liked Marco. And Marco was supposed to have a really strong presence and showing in South Carolina in 2016. He worked his butt off. He had thousands of volunteers. I, I was down there, watched him campaign. We worked really hard. I saw knocked you down out, there. Knocked thousands of doors down there. Um, and you know, he, he came in second and we were all surprised by that because we thought he was going to win. But as the campaign bus was driving out of South Carolina, um, I remember seeing like a a Trump headquarters there and I was like, I'm going to go see what this is all about. And I walk in there, there's like a few iPads and one like 70 year old person there, like just taking in names and Trump ended up winning in South Carolina without like a real grassroots infrastructure, nothing. Uh, nothing. And I thought that, that was the moment that I said to myself, okay, I'm missing something here. Clearly every media pundit who get paid big bucks to look at this stuff and figure it all out, they're missing something too. And, and, and that's, that's, that's why, that's why I just think, Beating President Trump in in twenty four is going to be a tall order. Just because of that, Selena, he's a he's yeah, a force to he, be reckoned he, with. You're not a change agent. Um, six years after you first ran, different mm. story, different dynamic. Um, I I think it's an open field. Now, if there's seventeen people that run, then Trump will will win. Um, uh, the a primary. I, I I will tell you when I understood that Trump was going to win. I was in Iowa. Did you go to Iowa at all? No, no. Okay. I did not. So, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, Republican voters in Iowa are mostly evangelical. No, they all are. Okay. <laughs> all of them. And when you go to cover a caucus, a, most voters that are going to a call, when you go to a caucus, it's like going to your local church basement. Right. Um, you know, everyone, everyone lives down within your precinct, within your community. You pretty much know everyone. You're related to at least a half of them. And everyone goes in there and, and they write down five names of who they support in order that the, of their support. Because when you do a caucus, you'll say, OK, who's ever for John Smith, stand up or raise your hand. And if John Smith doesn't get half the room. John Smith's done. So then Jane Doe's um, um, supporters come over and try to get you to, to join them, right? So people go in with five, 
on their hand. And I remember there were a bunch, there were about five or six guys sitting outside on a bench waiting to go in. And I'm like, so um, who's your first candidate? Everyone said, um, Ben Carson, of course. I'm like, why Ben Carson? He's just like us. He shares our <laughs> values. Second person. Who's your second person? Bobby Jindal. Oh, okay. Why? He's just like us. He shares our values. Third person, um, Ted Cruz. Well, we don't like him, but he shares our values. Like, okay. Fourth person to a T was Donald Trump. I'm like, Donald Trump, five, three time married, Playboy dating, Howard Stern regular from the outer boroughs. Yeah, um, he doesn't share our values at all, but he's just mean enough to go to the mattresses for us. And I walked out of that caucus and I said, Trump might not win the Iowa caucus, but it's over. If this many evangelicals feel this way about him, it's over. He's going to win the nomination. And each state I went to, all the other campaigns are like, he doesn't have grassroots people. He's not raising money with the fundraisers. He doesn't have precinct captains. He doesn't have this and that. And he didn't. Exactly. And it didn't matter because he was on Fox. He was on CNN. He was on MSNBC. He was on Twitter. He was everywhere. He was everywhere. Don't think this would ever happen again. This was lightning in a bottle in terms of the way he won, right? But I yeah. think that, that Jeannie is also out of the bottle. And um, I, I think his challenge right now, uh, Trump's challenge is, is that, um, that voters have a tendency. Well, first of all, I should say, most Republicans, I would say 70% of Republicans loved him. 60% or like 90% loved his policies. About 30% loved his personality. And that's his challenge, right? And how do you, how do you become a change agent um, six years after you first ran? That's his challenge. People are always looking in their windshield. They're not looking in their rear view, rear view mirror. And there's a nuance here. You can still love Donald Trump. You can still love his policies, but you still can also, in addition to those two very strong sentiments, you can still also want someone new. Well, you know, Selena, I also think that primaries are generally a, a good thing for a race and for a candidate. It helps you sharpen your message. Yep. Little competition's uh, a good thing. You know, spending some of that primary money that you had on maybe some outreach, whether it's commercials or or direct mail, also good. Um, it gets you ready for the big for the big show. And so, yeah, you don't you do not want to go into a general election without being beaten up a few times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I and, mean, I remember having conversations with you when you were running for Congress and you're like, well, what if I get like primary challenge? I'm like, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I know. It's not. <laughs> you, you should get beat up a little bit because oh, yeah. well, I know a little th I know a little bit about getting beat up in primaries. So. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm an expert at all of that now. Um, yeah. You so you talk about primary, you talk about the field and uh, there are going to be 17 candidates. There are going to be five. Um, are you surprised that it's early 
2023, South Carolina is getting this much attention. And the article that you wrote said, like, Asa Hutchinson had been there. Mike Pompeo has been there. Um, Nikki Haley's there. President Trump has a rally there this Saturday. South Carolina is getting a lot of attention. Yeah. Well, it's warm there and there's sun. Um, <laughs> that that's definitely has, I mean, has got to have something to do with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah, they have actually, great barbecue. Um, it's probably but, just that simple. It, it really probably is just that simple why it's getting so much attention right now and this early. Well, with the exception of 2012 primaries, um, every Republican that has won a primary there since 1980, beginning with Ronald Reagan, has gone on to win the presidency. Wow. wow. Every single one. The only quirky one was um, Newt Gingrich in 2012. And and that had a lot to do, don't know if you remember that that debate because you were 12 then, but <laughs> at, um, he went after my profession. And it was the first time every, anyone ever really I do remember that. that. And he I, I do remember the place that. up. And that's if people doubted like, oh, this populist thing isn't real and conservatism, it's just Trump. No, Trump did not cause the conservative populist coalition. He is the result of it. And if anyone thinks that he caused it, has not been paying attention to this strain in conservatism that has been growing since 2006. Yeah. Oh, boy. Selena, this is why we love you. Insight, your insight into this stuff is, uh, I mean, I think you're the best in the country at it. And you've had your ear to the ground on this stuff, well, since I was 12. <laughs> probably probably, well, probably you, longer than that. <laughs> people, people laugh at me, but I wrote this in 20, 2006 after the Republicans lost the House that year, first time since 1994. And I remember... Uh, going, it, it would be where your district is now. I remember going to uh, cover a Jason Altmyer event. Now, if you remember, um, Melissa Hart had been the congresswoman from the Beaver Butler area forever, right? And they loved her. All those little Italian grandmas loved Melissa Hart. So I go to this event at the Italian Sons and Daughters in Butler. Was it Butler? It was either Butler or Beaver. I can't remember. And I walked in and I was like, oh my God, these are all these are all Melissa Hart supporters on their hair for Jason Altmeyer. Hmm. And and what I learned in that moment was that they were still conservative. Uh, but they had believed that the establishment of the party had stopped paying attention to them, had stopped listening to them. The Democrats under Rahm Emanuel, who would go, he who would um, be Obama's chief of staff and then go on to be the, uh, the um, mayor of New York. But he was smart. He picked all kinds of Democrats that were pro-life, pro-gun, pro-military and about fiscal responsibility to run against Republicans. And these voters were like, Look, this is this person may as well be a Republican. I'm going to vote for them because I'm mad at the mm -hmm. Republicans because they're not listening to me anymore. They're spending way too money, much money. We've been at war too long and they've stopped listening to us. Wow. And, wow. and at that moment, I realized conservatives aren't just mad at Democrats. They're mad at their own party. No doubt and about it. I mean, we still are. 
within 10 years, we are going to have a change agent for president. 10 years later, it was Donald Trump. Every two years, you saw that happen. Yeah, that's fascinating. And 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 by the way, I still think the establishment Republican Party has a real problem with right. regards to listening to their base and talking directly to them and building coalitions. It's a problem that exists to this day. Um, all right, let's shift gears for a second because you know we're talking a lot about politics. We could talk all day about politics. Um, you also have another piece out that I think is really important. It's called "Parents Want a Complete Overhaul of the Education System." Now, COVID was horrible and horrific for a lot of reasons um a lot of people struggled uh but there were maybe one or two silver linings within the pandemic and within all the lockdowns and and i think one of those silver linings was that parents started to pay more attention to what their children were learning in school and i i know this because all of a sudden instead of sending your kids to school in the morning like they were home they and they I was at a Zoom meeting for work while my kids are sitting right next to me on Zoom or class dojo meetings to my right. And I'm, at, I'm doing work meetings just like this. And I'm I'm also hearing what their teachers are saying. And right. so for the first time in a long time, parents, I think, heard exactly what their what their kids were learning in school. And it seems like if your article is true, and I think it is, it seems like people aren't happy with the no. way their kids are being taught today. No, they're not. Um, and, and the data in that story, I hope people go and read it. SelenaZito.com. Sign up for my emails. They're free. They're fun. They're not fattening. Um, but um, there was, I wrote about this probably six months into the pandemic, the first time I wrote about it. And I call it the Great Awakening. And, and I believe that that awakening has, has not eclipsed. Right. What happened as to your point, parents are sitting shoulder to shoulder with their children. And look, you send your kids off to school pre pandemic. You have this expectation, reading, writing and arithmetic. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and the technology that now goes with it. And you rightfully assume that that is what your children is are, are learning. That's what your kids are learning. You're sitting beside your children, shoulder to shoulder. You're on Zoom. They're on Zoom. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Wait, what are they teaching you over there? Come on over here, kid. What's going on over here? And then you like stick your head in your kid's Zoom class and be like, um, what are y'all talking about? Because this this is not the curriculum that I signed up for. And 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 so uh, uh, layers of things happened. There was this awakening. This, there was this awareness that pe- parents all of a sudden became. It, it sort of crystallized to them that their that their children's education is not something that they grew up with. And and that doesn't mean that you need to be stuck in the eighties or stuck in the sixties or whatever generation you you come from as a parent. However, there are, are these things that belong to be between a, um, um, a conversation between a parent and a child, not to be taught to children, um, to, and not to be taught to children at very young, impressionable ages. Absolutely. Okay, so there was that problem. So that was the first part of the awakening. The second part of the awakening was, um, yeah, we're, we're going to stay closed. Oh, who made that decision? The teachers union. Um, who controls this te- teachers union? Politics. Oh, wait, what? Wait, teachers unions have more say than my, I do? School mm. boards have more say, more say than I do? 
I, this is, again, not what I signed up for. And children went for a year, a year and a half with being in front of a screen that didn't eat, that didn't just impact their education. It also impacted them emotionally. There were ludicrous situations where children had to wear masks while on Zoom calls. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely asinine. Yes. The, 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 the devastating emotional, social, psychological consequences of perpetual mask wearing in schools is, is insane. Yet we're continue this, that this narrative that they're somehow helpful, you know, even though COVID doesn't affect children in the same way that it affects grownups and senior citizens. And if teachers are vaccinated, theoretically, they should be protected. Although we're learning now that that's not the case. Um, but what, what stuck out to me about this article and I want to read a part of it. Okay. It says the disruption, in other words, the school closings, the disruption has been devastating. Test scores shared with the associated press showed that the average student lost over half a year of learning in math in a quarter of a year in reading, but students in some public school districts lost twice that in learning yeah. that the, who the knows and browner a school is the worse it was this Ah, this and so, is and so so what what you saw you, what you see is that uh, several things have happened in response to that. Um, parents have started running for school boards. They have upturned school boards across across the country and within our own state um, and uh, of Pennsylvania. Uh, they, you have also seen an, an, a great exodus out of public schools, not just to private and, and, and parochial schools or Catholic schools, uh, but also to homeschooling. Homeschooling attendance has doubled since the beginning of the pandemic. Wow. And, and so uh, I think there has been an outright rejection of, of the curriculum, um, e even among liberal parents, right? People mm -hmm. who believe that, you know, they're, they're, you know, they, they have this great insight, right? They're intellectuals, right? Even, even the highest of the intellectuals are like, yeah, no, <laughs> you're not teaching my kid that, right? Right. Uh, and, and so I, I think this is something that is, that, um, is only in the beginning of the snowball. I think we are going to see bigger changes in the next two to five years. And I don't think that that's going to change. Look, one of the reasons that people read my stuff, um, I, I write about politics, but I also write about culture because culture tells us, gives us hints of the direction that the country is going. So we look at culture a lot of times through the lens of our cultural curators. What's a cultural curator? Corporations, big tech, um, Hollywood, entertainment, NFL, um, and, the, and the large news media. But what I try to focus on is the culture of everyday people. So, so if you look at the stories I wrote, and we talked about this two, two segments ago, the story I wrote about bullying. I mean, do you, I have heard from bullying alleys all over the country because of the story, just saying like, oh my God, I can't believe it. You got it right. Like we are booming, like <laughs> bullying. We're like, we've never been so busy. Or that silly story I wrote about the sheep. <laughs> I don't know if you read it. The I sheep, did read it. The, the, yeah, the um, sheep to shear contest at the farm show. Like 
that may have been the most fun I ever had in writing a story. But it tells you a lot about the culture that we don't talk a lot enough or about the burn supper that I wrote about. You know, people, people, uh, uh, Americans, as DeCoquil wrote, love to join things. They love to join, they love to create groups and associations. And you see that in, in the culture that, that you and I sort of live in, but you don't see examples of that in, among our cultural curators. And that's why I think uh, this is a really long way of me saying it's important to also read stories about our culture because it tells you a lot about who we are, not just politics. I mean, that's why that's why I think your reporting is so important, because the NFL, these corporations, big tech, they don't get it. And yeah. oftentimes these Americans that you write about are often overlooked by all of our so-called cultural curators. And so yeah. I, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this article. We can never we can never shut down schools like that again. No. The consequences on our children have have been devastating in a lot of different ways, some of which we don't even know about yet, how this will affect our country and future generations or what the workforce will look like 10 years from now. I don't know, but we can never let it happen again. And I, I this and I hope I hope that parents all across this country get involved and run for school board to ensure it never happens again. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I've also seen really interestingly the growth, the, the movement back towards trade schools and trade in high schools. Uh, my mm. nephew uh, is is at Taylor Alderdice High School in Pittsburgh. Mm. Is taking welding. That's awesome. Like that hadn't been in school like since I was there back in the Stone Ages, right? Yeah. So I think there are examples. And, and we don't, in, in our national media, place enough highlight on, on, on those examples. Uh, but I think the undercurrent of our society is actually normal. It used to be the undercurrent or it was the darkness. But I think the undercurrent in our society today are the normal people. And we just don't talk about them enough. I agree. Selena, you're the best. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you next Friday. Thanks so much for, for joining Oh, thanks so much for, ha for having me. I can't wait. We're going to take you guys into the Fiesta Ware factory in Newell, West Virginia. <laughs> it is the last American pottery making company in the entire country. In a town, I mean, where else? Where else are you going to get coverage like this? Where else where, are you going to hear a about town the where there used to be three hundred of them? <laughs> yeah, I'm that girl. You're that girl, My and girl. with with. An unruly yet awesome head of hair. So. Yeah, but I straightened it today, so I'd, I looked like a little more normal this week. So yeah, show this show this one more. Last <laughs> week I looked like Medusa. It was like oh, it was the Medusa Selena. <laughs> you look great. You look great. <laughs> talk to, talk to you next week. Thanks, right, Selena. Thanks, Sean. All right, bye. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.